Hi, folks. It's Tabby, and you're listening to the Modern Life Podcast. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Modern Life Pod. I have Jason back with me today. He was on to discuss Dune on an earlier episode, and this time we're checking back in to see how the 2021 version compares to the book and the David Lynch film. We also have a second topic this time around, which is Palm Poco, a Japanese animated film from the 90s, which we're using as a framework to discuss larger issues around housing and the environment. There'll be timestamps in the description box if you're only here for one of the two films, and if you wanted to check out our previous episode on Dune, you can find it on modernlifepodcast.com. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? Welcome back, everyone, to the Modern Life Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Dune and Palm Poco. So we're skipping the modern thoughts. And I have uh, Jason back. And we're going to be talking about the new 2021 delayed Dune movie by Denis Villeneuve. Jason, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, we are finally getting into the fall weather here in Arizona, although it's still in like the 85s through the week. But, uh, you know, otherwise can't complain. Nice, nice. <laughs> so just a reminder for everyone, Dune is a sci-fi story of Paul Atreides and his rise to becoming the prophesized messiah of Dune. I don't think we need to go into a whole summary. We've done all that before. We're just going to give all our impressions about the new film. Jason, my first question is, did you watch this in the theater? Did you watch it at home? I watched it at home. I really should have watched it in the theater, I feel like, because, you know, giant sandworm blooming over you. But, uh... <laughs> Uh, no, I ended up watching it at home. Me too. What about you? Yeah. I watched it at home and I think that was the better choice because one of my main issues with the film was the constant noise and the constant music and there never being a moment of silence. And... I started getting a headache, and I feel like that would have been even worse <laughs> if I watched it in the theater. <laughs> I would have liked the theater experience, if only because there's such variation between the quiet speaking and the louder points of the film. And mm. I feel like if it was in a theater setting, I wouldn't have to like keep reaching for the remote to turn it up during the... Um, like the speaking moments, but I, I totally understand what you mean. Although I didn't think about it before you mentioned that about it. There's just like no real moment of, of quiet. It's always, it's always moving. It's always doing something. Yeah. And I don't have any issue with the music itself. I think it was just an issue for me of music supervision and how it was put in. And I think because the music was so constant too, for me, the tone felt like the same all the way through. Even some of the big, like, sad moments, like Duke Atreides dying, it, it left me really cold because it was just, like, the same kind of even pacing, the same music all the way through. Like, I didn't feel like it ever, like, hurried up or even when there was an action scene, it kind of... I, I don't know how to describe it. Like, in that mm. scene with the factory where they're trying to get all the workers out of the factory before the worm arrives, you still have all these really slow scenes of Paul just staring at the sand... 
And I would have cut some of that out just to like speed it up and make us feel a little bit more like, oh, something's happening. Like, Hurry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just some of the editing for me was a little, little strange or like not, yeah, not in line with some of the moods they were trying to create. I, I hear you on that. It's kind of like it's a like a ride or something like that. This is the Dune ride, and you go through the dips, you go through all of the normal motions of it. But yeah, I can understand what you mean about like how it doesn't feel is is lived in in some ways. Mm. I I will say though, like overall, if I had to you know pick this one or the David Lynch film, this is the one that I would would have been super excited to see as like my first Dune movie. Um, over the Lynch one, even though I really appreciate the the David Lynch uh, uh, interpretation and, and efforts on this, but yeah, I, I think there's there's plenty to to pick apart with this film as well. It, it's not imperfect, and it's not imperfect in the uh, uh, funny and like brazen i don't i can't really think of the words to describe like just the incredible ways that david lynch chose to interpret some of this stuff it was just <laughs> so far out and like yeah. such such a bigger reach than i think this film does i think something that both films didn't quite do for me was and maybe this is just me, maybe this is just how I'm imagining it, but the world of Caladan that's supposed to be like this green lush world was again gray. Because again, this movie has like not just the same tone, but I feel like the same tones of colors all the way through. Even if you're in the desert, mm -hmm. even if you're in Caladan, there's this like gray sheen over everything. They very deliberately only had everyone wear black or gray for the whole film, which I thought was... It was a choice. I don't know, but yeah, you know, it felt more like a dark Ireland than like this lush world. I feel like he did that on purpose just to show the contrast between Paul being completely out of his depths. But I never quite yeah. got that feeling based on how they how they sh portrayed the planet. Yeah, Caledon. I, I think they really were going for like Scotland, the planet uh, is kind of what it seemed <laughs> so, like. Yeah, uh, so and especially because they, you know, chose at several points for the battle music, the bagpipes, uh, as mm. kind of the the summoning. And I was like, yeah, I mean, they're they're really trying to. This is a, a marsh people um, for the most part. Uh, but you're right; it is like very muted and and very very staid in a lot of ways. Even over on Caladan, they went for the scotland version of water as opposed to like the caribbean or mm -hmm. the caribbean maybe know, like, i'm just the only person who was imagining that when they were reading the book i don't know i don't think i would have picked scotland for that you know as like the comparison but i probably would have picked something closer to that than like tropical i don't know why you know like no i i, I believed it house atreides is just such a dour i mean you know the, the yeah, they're such a dour family uh, in all of this, too, where it's kind of like, yeah, of course they come from a, a dreary, you know, like mist-blown <laughs> place. There's a ton of water, but uh, I wish I could remember anything more than, like, two years ago. I was trying to make a, a Game of Thrones um, equation. They're, they're, the, uh, they're the house from the north, basically, is how I would oh, describe I can see the Atreides. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> The first part of the film also had some of my favorite scenes, honestly. I love the way they introduced the voice by having them eat breakfast and Lady Jessica asking him to 
pass the water, um, you know, make me pass the water. I was like, oh, this is a really quick, nice exposition. You know, we get what she's trying to do. And then also the conversation between um, Paul and his father, I thought was very touching where he tells him like, oh, you're the only thing I ever needed you to be was my son. And mm -hmm. that also set up the relationship very nicely and then also contrasted it between the nephew and uncle of the Harkonnen house and kind of their relationship which is kind of the opposite of this nice family but <laughs> and also the the bullfighting I'd forgotten about that I don't know if that was in the original Dune book or if that was in some of the later ones but I couldn't remember that they have this family history of the grandfather like bullfighting I think it is in the in the book um, I don't remember it at all in, in the David Lynch film but yeah no I I thought that was a really interesting point to blow up for this film and like make it a much more prominent aspect of their history i even thought the little statue that was kind yeah. of angular and i don't know like 80s or 90s kind of way was like a really cool construction as well like as a prop mm -hmm. i thought it was really neat I agree. uh yeah no I will say on that one opening uh, where they are demonstrating the use of the voice, I mean, it's one of the first things um, that you come across in the film. There's kind of a weird Oedipal or like sexual tension between Paul and uh, his mother. And in the opening scene, you know, like maybe the third thing that she says to him is, if you want it, make me give it to you, which... <laughs> I think that was an intentional sort of just like there is this weird tension between these two that I think is like tapping into some older tradition of like talking about the relationship between like son and mother or something. I don't know. I didn't pick up on it a ton in the rest of the film, although there is a point when they are both having to undress and get on like their still suits or whatever. And they both kind of like glance at each other. I don't know. This this film is kind of tapping into a weirdness of their relationship that I picked up on the book and David Lynch mm. like totally glossed over. I yeah, didn't I pick know. up on that at all. I didn't <laughs> see it like that, but that doesn't mean it's not there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm the only person seeing that, but just as like the third thing, you know, in the movie, she's like telling him to exert force over her. Uh, you know, sets up this kind of weird, I don't know. It's... <laughs> Maybe I'm reading something into this, but I'm also someone who uh, I have a history of not reading enough into the sexual nature behind things. Like in uh, Lord of the Flies, I never picked up on the scene where they're like stabbing the pig that if they're implying that the kids had sex with like the pig. Uh, totally what? missed that. Okay. <laughs> I read that book multiple times, and you know, why people, multiple times? Uh, I think I was assigned to read it, and oh. then it was like on a list of books that I could write about for like AP or something later. So I was like, sure, I'll pick a book I've already read. That's easy. That's uh, that's more time I can spend playing video games instead of reading a book. Um, <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, so I I'm not very sensitive to this sort of stuff, but for whatever reason, I I was picking up on it in the book, and I'm I'm glad they did something with it maybe in the film but you didn't pick it up so maybe i'm i'm still just you know reacting <laughs> who knows i want to go back to the just the environments of the film one more time because something yeah. that again i don't think was well done or maybe like a little bit of a misfire was just the world of dune and how oppressive it is and we had this conversation with the first movie 
And here we are again. Like, the actors just don't seem to experience heat. And to kind of show you how much sand there is, there are just these shots after shots of just showing the environment with like the music swelling, the music never stops. And it's like, here's another shot of a, of a dune. But, but to me at home, that doesn't do anything to convey to me like what this world is like. Like, for example, the scene of Paul in the gardener, he's still wearing his like black polyester suit. He's not wearing sunglasses or a hat or he's chill. Like this doesn't affect him at all. And yet the gardener who's been living on this planet the whole time is like decked out completely protecting himself. But like uh, Timothy Chalamet has to be like the pretty boy of the movie. So he can't, he's barely even sweating. And I think um, something that does this really, really well is um, the hateful eight by Tarantino where you feel oh, yeah. how cold it is for the whole film because the actors are showing you how cold it is. And they're, they're in the house most of the time. You don't see the snow really that much, yet you still get that feeling from the film. And I wish that they had used that as their example for Dune and just done a little bit more with the environment. Yeah, I appreciate that you brought up The Hateful Eight, which I finally watched this last year. Mm. Uh, and that, that you're right. It's like a bottle episode in, in a movie, basically, where they just are in the one setting. Mm-hmm. And you, But you know it's cold outside. I mean, from the way everyone's reacting to the way they're dressed or whatever. As someone who has, like, worked out in the heat wearing, like, neoprene, like, waders, it's hot. You know, even <laughs> when you're, like, lightly dressed under that. But yeah, he's in like all black. He's speaking with a local who's like, you shouldn't be out here in this. And like, that's as much of a taste Mm -hmm. of the heat as you even get in, you know, the film, basically. Otherwise, you know, they kind of describe it through the absence of plant life and like animals or whatever, except for the, the mouse. And I mean, you know, living out in the desert where it gets, you know, up to like 120, like I'm sweating within two seconds of like being outside and you're like you're nervous and looking around there's an existential dread that Mm. you really develop uh or that i certainly developed but i'm also pale as as all hell um (laughs) that you develop like in the desert and it's really funny like just walking around here how much everyone like weaves um when they're walking just to get under like a bit of shadow Um, and it just becomes this sort of like background instinct to it but you're right they don't get into the psychology of what it's like to live in a, a very hot very dry place all the time he never has to moisturize either you know like i have to moisturize all the damn time out here uh, <laughs> just I, I take just, all this stuff for granted just don't get it because that's what the whole book that's the title of the book like and the yeah. book does it so well of like showing this extreme weather and the cultures that and how they function and Yet again, it's like, oh, we have to show the actors' faces so we can't have them wear their still suits properly or, like, wear their hats or wear their... It's just... Maybe this book just doesn't work as a movie. I don't know what it is. (laughs) People want to show a lot of face in these, and, of course, it's the desert, and uh, you really need to be heavily shaded. So you can't just film everyone with, like, slanted shadows like over their eyes the entire time not everyone yeah. can be a, a mysterious samurai <laughs> <laughs> the thing that was really good though the bar was very low was the shields i really liked the cgi around the shields how that was done but i mean before we had like weird geometric shapes so <laughs> right yeah i mean the the shields in the david lynch film were 
pretty hilariously done. And <laughs> you're right. The bar is incredibly low. Like, can you depict a more realistic shield <laughs> using uh, computer graphics in 2021 than you could in whenever Dune was made, 84, I forget. Yeah, no, the shields I thought were, were really well done, mm -hmm. um, at least in the close-up fight between, oh my god, it's not Thufir Hawat, it is Gurney Halleck, there we go, uh, when uh, Paul is training with Gurney Halleck in the early scene, and the, they do the slow blade there, and I thought that was a good demonstration, but like later on in like the big battle scenes, I couldn't tell that anyone was doing like a sort of slow you know, blade uh, to, to get underneath the shield. Um, in those later portions. And I'm like, this just looks like a regular sword mm -hmm. fight, you know, mm -hmm. like, but I think otherwise they, they did a good job. I, did they explicitly say in the film that this is the reason why we don't have projectile weapons and that we all have to fight by sword or, or were people? No, just no, no, that was not, I don't know that they even put that in the film. Because That's what I mean. the Duke Adrades has, a, is wearing a shield and he's getting hit, but with a, dagger or something yeah, oh yeah uh the the projectile um oh, god i forgot the name the venomous bug right. robot the seeker right or i don't know but maybe they just chose not to go that route for the film or thought it was too much yeah. explanation i don't know but i think this this is the explanation in the book for why like the shields are, are critical you know it's like this is how we get back to not everyone using projectile weapons and so forth and battles become this much more close up and sort of intimate sort of experience but i feel like they totally glossed over that in film and they're just like yeah we have shields we fight with swords but like to mm -hmm. someone who has not read the book or who has not damaged their brain by thinking about dune as much as i have <laughs> i don't know that that would be an obvious sort of like oh okay that's what's happening yeah i think you had more things to say though on the action scenes as well right like the use oh. of wires and <laughs> some of the yeah, stunts. There were some interesting choices on all of it. That was, yeah, the use of wires was just kind of excessive. Um, Strangely, in, like, in obvious. Where I'm like, did you mean, maybe they meant to make it obvious? I don't know. It didn't feel like it was supposed to be natural. That, and that's what I was, like, trying to figure out with it, too. Because I was like, if this is supposed to be demonstrating, like, the power of the spice, then maybe I could get behind it. But these are people who are pre-spice, who are doing these, like, sort of superhuman feats already. You know, no one's really on the spice diet in, in this part of the film. But I feel like that's going to take away from it and, like, the, the future fight scenes. Because you're like, what are you comparing this to? Well, uh, Right, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's just some like cheesy fight choreography. I think U.S. fight choreography is just bad in general. It's like too short of cuts, and there's always this like absurd level of like acrobatic effort in a lot of it. Like in the same mm -hmm. fight scene, I think it's uh, when Paul is envisioning, you know, future battles where he rolls over the the back of like two people to execute these, you know, like sick moves or whatever. And I guess he's on spice during that one, but it's just stupid. Like as a <laughs> as a fighting technique, it like relies on them to be stationary and to support your entire weight, you know, as you're like rolling over them. And sure, it kind of like looks cool uh, in some ways, but there's like so many other interesting things mm -hmm. that could happen. And instead, it sort of just ends up being this really distracting like. You could have, like, jumped over him or walked around him. You know, like, there's any number of other things. Like, I don't know. This is, like, parkour over humans and just, like, totally excessive 
in a battle where you're concerned about people coming at you from like multiple angles. Uh, my my gold standard for fights is Jackie Chan films and like uh, Ong Bak or something, which were really incredible because the people actually fighting were just mm-hmm. incredibly talented and, and spent a lot of time in the choreography. And this stuff just seems like cheap, like, all right, yeah, I mean, they're fighting. This one does like a flying double kick into the chest of uh, somebody else. And I guess that's like cool. But even like wrestlers can do that and not need like wire fighting. Like it's totally unnecessary. Anyway, I, I've got I've got opinions. No, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also like tough to protect actors where, and they're only doing yeah. actions action scenes and then the stunt scenes are separate and like you said, it's very different from maybe also in a better way than like Jackie Chan like destroying his body uh, for every oh, movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's maybe, I mean, destroying his body and the body of everyone else on set. Uh, I just watched Police Story uh, last year as well. And if you haven't seen it, that is one of the most incredible stunt films that I've ever seen. And I don't know, maybe I'm I'm still just riding on, on that high. I'm just like, everything sucks in comparison to, to this. <laughs> there were some exposition things that I thought were also quite strange. In that scene that you mentioned, where Gurney, Halleck, and Paul are training, he says, oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't feel like doing this right now, and can't you just play us a song instead? This never comes back. This is never explained. This just feels like one of these, like, weird gatekeeping like oh you only get this if you've read the book and i'm like but why why put it in here at all like it right I, i'm if i'm watching this i'm like what song like what is he talking about and also like all the weird terms they've included like the Bene Gesserit are called by their actual name they're also called the weirding women they're called witches so you have like three terms for this one person yeah they use the quizak quiz quiznab whatever it's called hatterack and yeah yeah. they use that like in the voiceover of the desert like whispering in but then for some reason the word planetologist was like too far they're like we have to cut this like nobody knows what a planetologist is and they like changed her name and i'm like just the choices you made on like what to include and what not it was it's just bizarre to me like same with jessica and duke leto where i feel like their relationship is very unexplored and if i hadn't read the book i wouldn't understand why aren't they married like what's going on with them like they seem to really like one another but again there's very little time spent on that and that's i think one of the most interesting and loving relationships in the in the book Although, I mean, I think they do a good job in the film of outlining the the underlying tension from all of it. I mean, it's unclear, you know, well, why doesn't he marry mm-hmm. his concubine? I don't even remember it being that clear in the book either. Like, what's he holding out for? He was uh, he was trying to make himself more valuable in the eyes of, like, the emperor. Because if he stayed single, he could still be, like, coupled with some of yeah. the greater houses. And, like, that's, some of the, like, political stuff that's going on in the book. I've, but that, again, that could have been, like, one line of dialogue. That could have been one line of... Why yeah. aren't you, ma- you know, I don't know. So it, there's these really easy fixes that I feel like, what? okay, but then why did we not put that in, but we put in the 20 shots of the desert, which yeah. is weird. But yeah, in terms of their relationship, I thought, I don't know. I think they're, his argument with, uh, so Duke Leto's argument with Jessica over 
over Paul suddenly, you know, kind of having like a dark shadow cast over him after he goes through the trial. I thought was kind of interesting and a good way of describing the inherent tension at the core of their relationship where like, yes, there is real love and real feeling between these two, but ultimately, you know, a good portion of why Jessica is there is to complete this 10,000 year eugenics project. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course that's going to create a bit of tension between you. And I think at one point where he is like, or where Duke Leto is asking Jessica if she'll watch over Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, of course, you know, I love my son. Or he's like, no, I'm asking as a Bene Gesserit, uh, will you watch over him? Because he has to think about both of those aspects for regardless of whatever her personal feelings are. Uh, she seems to have to obey the sort of higher calling as a Bene Gesserit, although she does betray it, you know, by having a, a male son, which is explicitly against the wishes of the Bene Gesserit mm-hmm. at large. I, I don't know. I, I think they definitely could have gone deeper into their relationship. Like, it's not clear why they like each other at all, you know, except like, ah, we got a kid together and presumably we've been living together for a while. But th- there's really no what is it about each other, you know, that they really like? And there, there's nothing on that. Yeah, I just wish, because uh, I lumped those scenes, actually, and I just wish there was a little bit more of that. Yeah. Duke Leto, notorious funny guy who can always make Jessica laugh, you know, like just any sort of, like, what is the the, the structure underneath this? Yeah, this uh, movie what... did not have any humor in it, did it? I can't remember. Um, oh, maybe Jason so... Momoa cracks, like, one joke. I don't know. Yeah, uh, Duncan Idaho, I think, is the only glimpse of, like, comedic relief in it. I, I think there's, like, some comic tension with the spitting. <laughs> but, yeah, otherwise, it's it's a pretty humorless and, and sort of, like, dark film. But I kind of feel like that's pretty accurate to the book. Yeah, honestly. yeah. Not I a agree. whole lot. And I'm glad they didn't try to, like, Marvel or Joss Whedon it up uh, about, <laughs> like, are we really doing this right now? I think we're doing this right now, you know? <laughs> We're riding the worm. Yeah. <laughs> um, why are there now two Dune movies with Black Sludge? I literally went back to the book and I was like, is this in the book? In the oh, in the Lynch yeah. one, he's like flying through that oil spill. And then in this one, he's like coming out of the healing chamber, which is like Black Sludge. And I'm like, was this in the... At this point, I'm just believing it was in the book because they keep putting it in these <laughs> movies. <laughs> You know, I don't I don't think it was in the book. I, I don't think, think so either, but like it seems to be a thing to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought that was like one of the coolest things that Lynch did um was with Baron Harkonnen, whose name is Vladimir, which I didn't remember from the book at all. Um I'll I'll maybe talk about this in a bit, but um they mention it uh at least in the subtitles um when I was watching this the second time through to actually get all the dialogue that I missed because they whispered it. Lots but, of whispering but, again with this. Yeah, film. Lots of, and, and not in the commanding way. Uh <laughs> but yeah, the when Baron Harkonnen is like flying underneath that like shower of, of black sludge, you know, gleefully and just kind of like cackling or whatever, like I thought that was a really funny and awesome <laughs> way of like man this guy loves being evil you know (laughs) (laughs) he loves it you're right i didn't really think about the connection between that and the black sludge that he's like healing up in and like emerges out of uh in this one either but uh you know i liked it (laughs) maybe it was maybe it was an homage to david lynch i don't know 
Yeah, not all of this was bad. They kept him flying, which I guess in the book he also does have some sort of like gravity, anti-gravity belt mm-hmm. or something like that. But I think they did the flying aspects really cool in this mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Um, I gotta say, I was complaining about the wire stuff earlier, but it makes sense in the the Baron Harkonnen aspect of the, this. Just in general, I thought this was a pretty good script, and I wish that most of the actors hadn't been mumbling their lines so much. I'm like, <laughs> why is this a thing now? Please speak up. But yeah, there's lots of things to love about this film. Lots it gets right. Um, I loved when they're trying to get away right before Jason Momoa's character dies and the planetologist is like, quick, we can go this way, that she like is guiding them through that and not not the scene from the book where Paul's like, I know there's a secret entrance over there because I know everything. I'm like, why is Paul yeah. so boring? Like, I think they tried <laughs> to make him a little bit more interesting in this one. Sorry, random fact. I had to look this up. Kyle MacLachlan is the guy who played Paul Atreides in the David Lynch film. Timothy Chalamet is, of course, the one who plays him in this film. They are the same age at the, at the age when they played Paul Atreides, which is so funny to me because, huh. like, Paul McLaughlin just looks like he has been 35 probably since he was, like, 15 <laughs> or something. So, you know, it was always really funny because in the book, Paul is 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And so I, I never bought the father-son relationship between um, Kyle McLaughlin and uh, the original Dune film. But, I mean, Timothy Chalamet just looks boyish because of his, yeah. like, build. He has, like, a, a thin jaw as opposed to, like, Kyle McLaughlin's more, I don't know, classical, wider jawed and mm-hmm. normal, more t- typical build. Uh, I don't know. But I thought that was so funny to me. And it was, like, so much more believable um, as a, a younger character who's, like, naive and doesn't really understand his, like, position in the world as opposed to uh, McLaughlin, who's, you know, again, looks like 35 and looks like he's already a, like a manager somewhere in this. But um, <laughs> Timothy is, is much more child-esque. I feel like he's probably going to be one of those actors who's just going to stay, you know, like Thomas Brody Sangster. Like, they're just going to stay looking a child forever. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think they do a really good job of, uh, like, his excitement to see uh, Duncan Idaho, you know, and, like, them being, like, much more buddy-buddy. It feels more like an uncle-nephew kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And it seems, you know, genuinely sweet. Like, he's excited in the way, that, like, a kid would be. Like, yeah, my sick uncle is here. Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I thought the Paul character was much better done in this. He actually seems, like, much more torn about his position and potentially resentful uh, about it as well, which the David Lynch version of this was just Paul succeeding more and more until he <laughs> uh, succeeds all over the planet. And and this one, he's he's much more tormented by it and tormented by the visions and doesn't necessarily like what is happening to him, mm-hmm. um, but he's figured mm-hmm. how to how to navigate it. Agreed. Yeah. Probably the the biggest note that I have is hey, you never read Dune Messiah, right? No. Which is I just so read I the did, Wikipedia entry. <laughs> yeah, I never did either. But it turns out, I was listening to a podcast. Uh, the podcast is called American Prestige with uh, Danny Bessner and Derek Davidson, I think are the two people uh, who run it. And they interviewed this professor who I think is over at like Northwestern who wrote really extensively about Dune and um, the author of Dune uh, and his life and got into 
a lot of stuff that I had thought I had some handle on, but it turns out really didn't. The the first key thing is that apparently Dune and Dune Messiah are really meant to be read together and not, you know, Dune is the good one and Dune Messiah is the one like nobody reads or should care about. Regardless of whatever the quality is, it was always the author's intent to basically set up an ambush for the reader because Paul becomes a very reprehensible, like, genocidal leader and not in a, a good way of like, you know, just going and exterminating like, like the Harkonnen or whatever. Like he really goes off the rails and you are really supposed to feel conflicted about this character who you kind of cheered on as, as throwing off the, the Harkonnen offensive in it. Uh, and this movie in ways that I don't remember David Lynch tapping into at all really gets into the, that future darkness. And I really hope mm. they make a sequel to this and potentially like a third one. I don't know how it would uh, necessarily line up. Because I, if I envisioned a second film, it would just be the rest of the first Dune book. But if there was like a third one that actually goes into the Dune Messiah aspect of it, they would really have to go into, you know, like all of the things that you have a problem with as a reader that you kind of like brush aside because you're like, oh, maybe it was just like the times or whatever. Like the Bene Gesserit, like 10,000 year campaign to set up this religious fervor about the, the Kwisatz and all of that is inherently messed up, you know? Like, it's not good. Without that sort of, like, second novel establishing the fact that, like, everyone viewed him as a messiah and kind of followed him in ways that were more unquestioning than they probably would if he was just, like, a regular political figure. And when he goes full genocide, under any other circumstance, you would recognize that this is, like, really fraught and not even fraught don't do genocide uh <laughs> so like this is really set up in this film because he has paul has visions of i forget the exact quote but it's like um an army or like a, a pile of skulls underneath the house of Trades banner like or like uh, this war fought in the like the name of like my father and so forth and like he's tortured by it by all of like the horrible violence he's seeing and i think just reading the first book, if you only think about it in those terms, you're like, yeah, I mean, the war is bad, but ultimately it's to get the Harkonnen out of there and to reclaim Dune. And that's not necessarily such a bad thing, but it's not about that. It's about what happens in Dune Messiah, um, mm -hmm. where it goes fully off the rails and you're kind of getting admonished for like, yeah, you shouldn't unquestioningly just accept all of this because there was some like small amount of liberation in this planet, which I think you know, really makes me want to read Dune Messiah. I think that's a really cool sort of lesson from this book that I never got, you know, watching the David Lynch film or watching or rereading like the first book a couple of times. I hope they do a sequel, uh, at least the one to like round out uh, the first Dune novel. But honestly, I hope they do a third one to, to tap into that darkness, mm -hmm. which I think the script really sets up in some small ways but like there was that scene it, yeah. of them um coming back chani and him and everyone coming back to kaladin there was like a vision yeah. of that so they might they might go into that i mean we did talk a little bit when we did our first episode on dune how this is like it's very on the nose paul is jesus you know what do you do yeah. when you don't question your religious leaders and like how far does that go and i think and hope that the movie does that in a more subtle way and has a little bit more finesse about it because i think that a lot of the themes that frank herbert tries to look at and examine are he does it sometimes very heavy-handedly if that makes sense yeah. like he's, it, he can be a little 
on the nose with some of the things he's trying to communicate to the readers. Yeah. So one other thing about Frank Herbert that I learned that, so when I was like reading this book, I mean, which came out what in the 1950s, 1960s, I think. So Frank Herbert was actually conservative, uh, but he came from a leftist, like he grew up on a commune in Oregon originally, but he became very conservative uh, because he grew increasingly cynical of like the federal government and their interference in, in particular with indigenous peoples of the Pacific Northwest. This is very different than I think like how most people's political ideology has evolved like toward the left in this country where like the federal government is does a better job at a lot of things than like the states do, which have just kind of let everything fall apart. Um, but the longer history, of course, in the federal government and dealing with indigenous peoples is stealing lands, mm -hmm. not recognizing claims, etc. And so a lot of Frank Herbert's um, ideas about indigenous people, which comes through in Dune, has to do with like the federal government's like complete inability to deal with indigenous people even handedly and has like a deep distrust of the federal government and of these places that came out of that. But it basically is like development theory, which is a little bit different than just like the previous sort of like racism about like indigenous people. Like they're not capable at all of doing any of this stuff. So, you know, subjugate them, clear them off the land or whatever. It was this idea about like, well, if you bring them the technology, bring them the education, then we can modernize them. When they become modernized, they will naturally be the allies of us, um, mm. which is what Canada did. It's what the United States did in you know, the United States, but also in other countries around the world. A lot of his thinking originally was kind of along those lines. It was this sort of modernization theory. And so you see this kind of struggle between these two ideas in the book, between the Harkonnen who just kind of subjugate and are just like, you know, these people are completely worthless, they need to be wiped out, versus the the House Atreides, which comes in and are much more the modernizing force uh, that's mm. trying to like give them the technology and give them the help or whatever, so that they become the natural allies of this. And so in Messiah, he is much more critical of that because he has a longer view of the situation. Number one, this is kind of like, you need to be careful about who you're making allies with in, in these different regions because often you just kind of go for the more powerful and people often gain power through underhanded means or whatever. So you can prop up these sort of like regimes that end up being not necessarily healthy or whatever. There's these levels of interference that kind of come into play. Anyway, like, so you're right. Frank Herbert doesn't deal with a lot of this stuff like very, I don't know. He, he's very coarse with a lot of mm -hmm. his writing. But like, I, I really had no idea about the political ideology that he was like, growing up with and what he was talking about in terms of the competing political ideologies that, you know, then became major issues in, in South Vietnam and in and, and the decade uh, of his book being released. Like, it was actually surprisingly prescient about, like, U.S. Um, foreign relations after, like, the book was released. Mm -hmm. Anyway, really cool stuff. I, I should send you that podcast episode. But yeah, yeah, we'll no, definitely I'm... put it in the in the description. Yeah, this is really good yeah. background knowledge to know. And it you just reminded me of something I was going to ask you. When Duke Leto is the first person to protect the workers at the at the mine, instead of the yeah. spice, the planetologist kind of shoots him this look, and it's never explained. Like, there's never a line of like, oh, I decided to 
defend your family because they were the first ones to actually care about the people here. Like, there was never a line like that in the movies. And I was wondering, I can't judge now because I've read the book and I know <laughs> I know this. Like, But do you think that somebody who hasn't read the book would understand, would make that connection? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think it would... Yeah. <laughs> It's tough to imagine just watching this film and like having that be your only right like exposure to it. I really wonder. I like I don't know how young people communicate about this stuff, but I mean, you know, it's like a book from half a century ago, you know? Like yeah. it's tough to imagine that a lot of youth have like really read this. There was kind of this resurgence when I was growing up and maybe there's going to be that again, but as a result of the movie and certainly there's not a wave leading up to this movie of like young people reading Dune. Um, <laughs> right. So I don't know. I, I cannot imagine that they're going to pick up from that, that no i don't think so uh, either and again that would have such an easy fix why are you helping us oh your dad was the first one to help easy like yeah. it's one line <laughs> like it's just so yeah. just so strange some of the like choices they make in terms of like making this accessible to a new audience and when my brother was in the theater the other day he was watching something else there was a trailer for Dune, and the kids next to him are like, what is this, a Star Wars ripoff? So, which is hilarious to me, because <laughs> Star Wars is based on Dune, but, so yeah, kids aren't gonna know, like, what Dune is, or, like, what <laughs> what the book is, and so I just wish they had done a little bit more to make things more clear. Actually, kind of speaking about this, and this is a little bit related, because we talked about in the, the first episode we did, how the messages of like Dune are not necessarily good, you know, like there's a lot of problematic framing, like even Paul as a character. And I noted this when I was watching it, that when Paul puts his hand in the cube and like passes that test or whatever in the book, um, and maybe even in the, the David Lynch film, I can't remember, Jessica is talking with the head of B'nai Gesserit, and they explicitly talk about how like, he did better than any uh, woman or any girl child. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Like that. And, you know, they conveniently did not bring that up in this <laughs> sort of film. You know, he is definitely, you know, a sort of prophet, but um, the ladies are doing just fine too. You know, they don't bring that up. <laughs> like the casting decisions I thought were really interesting. It's like trying to bring in sort of a multiracial, multi-ethnicity sort of like casting element to it. But like, the core material is the core material, yeah, you know, like, yeah. I'm really curious how they're going to go through the the second, like, if they do a sequel to this, what that's going to look like, because, you know, they can get around the fact that, like, yes, Paul is better than all the women um, in this film, but, like, so much of, of Empire yeah. is going to happen in the next film, and Empire is not good, um, which is why I think you have to do the third film to actually get the the points across that the youth would actually agree with. It's not like, well, you just need to do Empire in the right way. It's like, no, Empire's bad. <laughs> yeah. I think they leaned into those themes of colonialism in a better way, like just the way the movie starts out and Chani kind of narrating, you know, these people coming into our planet and we're trying to take them out. I was like, oh, that's already like something we can relate to with our modern lens a little bit better. Also the fact that they just took out all the homophobia. There was a lot of tension for me around like the Baron Harkonnen portrayal because like in the book, they're like, he is a disgusting fat Oh yeah, fat people are gross you know? <laughs> and yeah, it's rough. <laughs> He's definitely portrayed as, as a heavier individual. I don't know how to properly say that in the film, but 
they don't and he's like eating duke leto's dinner you know like at his table they don't make it as like a central he's disgusting because he's fat you know right. sort of thing yeah. that that was definitely part of the book it's just interesting how they're like trying to not step on the third rail on on a lot of these issues mm-hmm. but they're like mm-hmm. it's a critical part of his character yeah, you know like yeah. <laughs> yeah anything else about june no, uh, I will note that uh, one of the plants that they mentioned that you can uh, plant on Planet Dune is the saguaro, which is the characteristic cactus of the northern Sonoran Desert. Uh, but they show no saguaro, uh, which is a disappointment. <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> saguaro cacti are the, the classic cacti, you know, with like the, the two arms sticking out of it. Like um, in the westerns? For, for, yeah, like in the westerns. Oh. Um, it's, it's, the iconic uh, cactus. It's actually extremely unique to like this part of the desert. Only other cool thing, Thufir Hawat's uh, umbrella that he's walking around with is, <laughs> I guess, I have that in my notes. He's got the really dainty umbrella, uh, which I thought was awesome. And also one of the only other things about like how intense the sun is. Um, but you know, even then he's not like sweating up a storm. Yeah. Just like I'm keeping the sun off me. Yeah, that umbrella was cute though. <laughs> yeah, the umbrella's very cute. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I I would say otherwise. I, I mean, how'd you like it? Yeah, uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, middle. Just that just the the thing I'm walk walked away with from this film was just having a headache. And it started to <laughs> devolve into us like making fun of the music and copying the singing. And like once we started talking as a family and not watching the movie anymore, like the movie has lost us. So and I can't I can imagine maybe watching it again, like with just subtitles and turning the sound off. But yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Denis Villeneuve. I, good effort, though. I feel really bad because this is such an expensive movie. And uh. You know, I, I follow a lot of people on, on Twitter who who really liked it, honestly. Uh, I mean, like old older people even who are old school Dune heads um, who are like, no, I mean, it was a legitimately good film. And I, I will say that if I was waiting, you know, if, for a long time i think the david lynch film is still like good and interesting but just as like a fanboy this would be the one that i would i would want to see where i'm like oh my god they did the shields really well Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah all righty so we're jumping into our next topic which is pom poco this is a 1994 film directed by isawa takahata animated by studio ghibli and hayao miyazaki was one of the writers most of the movie takes place in the 90s and concerns new housing developments that have replaced farmsteads to accommodate for an increase in population around tokyo this affects the local wildlife like raccoons and foxes The story follows the fun-loving raccoons in their attempt to perfect their magical shape-shifting powers to fight back against the construction. Before we dive in, I just want to say this is a bit of a niche movie. Uh, We don't expect all our listeners to have seen it, so we'll describe it more carefully to you. But if you're so inclined, it is also currently available on HBO. Um, But I think the movie is a great springboard for discussions on broader environmental issues, which is why I'm thinking you chose this one. This was such a random choice. Like, as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is such a Jason choice. (laughs) Tell me why you picked it. Uh, well, I picked it because it has long stood in my head as the, the, the key. I mean, you didn't mention this in your summary, but this is a uh, key lore to the film. It is a Hayao Miyazaki film uh, or with Studio Ghibli. 
that involves the use of raccoon scrotums um, as a key action points and key rallying points. Like somebody shared a screenshot from Palm Poker years ago online, you know, that I happened to see in some forum or something where it's just a bunch of um, Tanuki, the, the raccoon dogs uh, native to Japan with just these, you know, little scrotums just <laughs> hanging out like underneath them. They're like wearing clothes up top, but on bottom they're, you know, nude. Naked. So yep. they're like, they're, they're porky pigging it. But unlike porky pig, they draw the, the ball sack in, in every single scene. Uh, and I was just like, what is this? Like, is this a children's <laughs> film? It is a children's that, film. That, that Ayao Miyazaki worked on. I mean, and like, it's, it's more than that too. Like they're flying around on their scrotums. Like they're, they're doing all kinds of raccoon dog mischief. So you picked uh, this movie because you wanted to talk about raccoon scrotums. Got it. Got it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the original reason I watched it. Because I was just like, what the hell is this film? And then it ended up turning out to be like a, you know, a, a sort of parable about environmentalism and so forth. And I was like, oh, this is very different than mm -hmm. I just thought of like mischievous raccoons. And so Long story short, I have a very morbid curiosity about these images from like a decade and a half ago, probably. And then I happen to be like scrolling through Miyazaki films on HBO because I haven't seen a lot of them and saw that that one was actually included on there and you know, immediately added that to my watch list. So I was like, you know, I'll watch the other ones first, but I got to get around to this eventually. Yeah, the shape-shifting using like the testicles, it remains unchanged in all the DVD releases, but then in English, they change the subtitles. They keep calling it raccoon pouches, which is just like, yeah. I can just see the translator working on this being like, what the, f like, what the fuck? Like, so props to them for coming up with the term raccoon pouch. <laughs> yeah. Two key translation uh, differences when you get the subtitled version is, of course, in in the Japanese uh, one where you're watching the, um, the subtitles so, and not the dubs. They always refer to the raccoons as tanuki, which is actually a different species mm. than than raccoons. Um, they are colloquially referred to as raccoon dogs, is kind of the general description of them. But they're actually distinct from raccoons, and they're really cool looking. They kind of just look like a, I don't know, like a raccoon and a wolverine got crossed or something. They look a little more aggressive than your your standard raccoon. Mm. Not that there's anything wrong with raccoons, um, but then yes, the other thing where they refer to the um, scrotum as the raccoon pouch instead of the scrotum which they definitely like all the um the subtitles in the japanese version is just like scrotum but yes very fun i mean like how do you wrangle that like you talked about it's really funny that sort of invention of that term for this because yeah i mean like you had, this movie was huge in japan it brought in a ton of money um i think the amount was somewhere around like 50 or 60 million is what it netted like at the time. Then you have to like bring it to the American shores and it's like, yeah, it's like a fun animated film for children, but there are prominent scrotums. Uh, that, that is absolutely a critical part about this. And we're going to have to figure out a way, but you know, like we're leaving money on the table if we don't, uh, if we don't do this. So we, <laughs> the yeah. other thing that really shocked me too, is that this movie is two hours long. It is an incredibly yeah. long, like, a children's movie. I had to do this in multiple, multiple sittings just to, like, carve out time yeah. for this film. And HBO doesn't even allow you, like, Netflix to speed up 
speed up the the film if that makes sense and there's so many like random council scenes in the film that i could have easily been like cut and there's one where they start (laughs) threatening one another with like guns and i'm like what is happening like and that scene also goes nowhere like some of the decisions they come to in these council scenes and nothing is ever done with them (laughs) like it's just there's so much good stuff in this film i just don't know why it needed to be two hours long yeah but i will also say that on top of the the raccoon testicles like all the female raccoons also have like breasts like all of them which is just again a strange choice to make uh you're right the the length of the film is is really strange right and like Mm. also just because of the structure of it it's not a clear build upwards into like some larger action you know like it get more it gets more dramatic as it goes on or whatever but it's more just like it's just a story and like you feel like you just kind of live in it and then it's over basically as opposed to being on a a ride which is Mm -hmm. what it kind of like of other films that comes with good and bad uh, there are plenty of things where you're just like what happened to the guns you know in that one scene uh they're never brought out again and also that scene ends with them kind of just talking them down from it i thought that was like holy shit like there's a like a military coup going on here in, in raccoon world and then you know like an elder just kind of admonishes them and they're like all right yeah i mean that was a bad idea you're right i didn't think this through very well no question about you know like you you pointed a gun at the elders and all of everyone else. Oh my God. And like, that seems a little extreme. They're just like, yeah, who knows? In raccoon world, maybe that's not such a big deal. Cause you know, they're, they're precocious little creatures. No, it, it's wild. Yeah. And the raccoon council meetings, there's like these two factions. One is like more aggressive. One is trying like other tactics. They're all trying to get the humans to go back to living in the farmsteads so that it can support like the local wildlife, but uh, construction is kind of wiping everything out. And the raccoons that are more aggressive, they want to slaughter and kill like all the humans. And they do manage over the course of these years to kill quite a few humans, yeah. but I, which is also strange for a children's <laughs> movie. But I, I find it really funny that they decide not to kill humans because humans make... Uh, popcorn and the raccoons like eating popcorn and there'll be no more popcorn if all these humans die (laughs) there's a long scene about how much they would miss tempura particularly mouse tempura which is funny because it's like humans don't make mouse tempura (laughs) like if you miss it sounds like you're making your own yeah there's so many things where it's just like this is a movie for children so maybe i should not be applying this yeah it was just um, really cute like oh well we need we really like eating so we can't kill all the humans <laughs> yeah it, it is really funny though that they actually kill quite a few and you see a lot of the raccoons get killed too hit by cars mm. trapped shot whatever i don't know that i've ever seen a children's film where they have actively <laughs> executed a plot to to kill people um particularly in the name of environmentalism (laughs) as well you know like we're watching a bunch of what would be referred to in the u.s press as eco-terrorist uh raccoons murdering people and that just happens Uh, yeah, the movie, it does talk a lot about environmentalism. I love that it acknowledges 
that in the before times, humans and animals lived better together and and also acknowledges the good that humans can do for the earth, I think, because things are so dire right now with the environment. We don't always talk about how humans are really helpful for their environments and for ecology and all the ways that we can live with other creatures that can make their lives better. And one of the things I thought about as an example was something, I think it was in a science class in college, how the teacher talked about like mangrove forests, which is mangroves. I I know you know this, but like they're the trees that live in like water. I don't know how to explain it Mm -hmm. any better, but they're like great breeding grounds for fish. They help with carbon storage. They protect environments from waste. They can prevent flooding. And once they cut them all down to make room for these like farms like farming shrimp they actually made less profit than if they had just used the environment and like lived in a way that was in accordance with the environment i think another thing that's big right now or that i see sometimes on social media is people talking about single crop farming too and how that culture is really not benefiting us in a in a big way anymore and yeah i just thought it was nice of this movie to acknowledge like humans can really do amazing things yeah, it, it's not a purely, like, get all the humans out uh, sort of situation. It's like uh, both the the, rac- the raccoons and the people are facing population pressures. It's like, yeah, that's what that's what's happening on both sides here. And not that both sides isn't as, like, always, a, you know, a good thing to go to for the environment. But it's like, this is a very understandable problem. You have these raccoons, they have a population they're trying to support. They can no longer support it when you destroy their habitat. Um, but the humans are also also growing beyond like their own habitat constraints they are also animals you can have a more balanced relationship and in some ways Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you can humans have certainly managed the planet historically in order to promote the abundance of certain other like species plants animals whatever yeah i I thought it was a a relatively nuanced sort of take where Mm -hmm. it's just like look humans aren't inherently evil we make a lot of very selfish uh decisions because we can't basically it's you know we we can trap we can shoot we can do whatever to the animal population but does that mean it's right no it doesn't have to be this way Mm -hmm. like we are making active decisions about the ways that we're managing the planet that's causing the the um the extinction the decrease in, in these other animals and you know why why are we doing that yeah Um, we would all be happier if we weren't in fact exactly exactly Um, yeah i want to dive into the ending already (laughs) because i thought it was so (laughs) depressing the ending is basically there's no solution the farmsteads are not coming back we have habitat fragmentations and some of the raccoons are now living as humans because they have the power to transform into humans and some of them are selling even more land to developers and like hurting their own population even more i'm like why traders why (laughs) why is it so sad (laughs) i think this film has a lot of the like ambivalence or allows for a lot of ambivalence is maybe the wrong term for it. I mean, it's just like, it's not really there. It's, it it does some preaching, but it's not just about preaching. Movements are complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, Solutions, solutions are are rarely complete, you know, like on, on either side. Um, These are very realistic depictions of how, how this sort of movement would actually go. 
and all of the depressing ways that it would go. Like, yeah, the raccoons posing as humans and selling their own real estate um, out from under, you know, their raccoon brethren is very depressing, but absolutely happens. It's a depressing ending because it's not like it comes mm -hmm. to a sort of solution. It's just like, what are you going to do? You know, like yeah. there, there are better ways to go about it. But like, hey, you know, even this movement had its own factionalism and its elements that worked against itself, like even from within. Right. There's so many ideologies on display here that are like jockeying for dominance and like ultimately it just kind of becomes a sigh. <laughs> mm, makes me sad. No. There is a scene in the yeah. film where these litters like just throw their trash on the floor and I think the raccoons like pick it up and throw it back at them. For some reason yeah. that was very satisfying. <laughs> Littering yeah. is just so annoying. Like, even a murder, you could sometimes maybe argue you were doing it out of, like, defense. But, like, littering is just like, why? You have no reason to do this. <laughs> so pointless. I have this weird idea about littering. And I try to, like, explain this to, like, fellow environmental people. And, like, I don't necessarily think it gets much traction with them. But I'm always, like, I'm, I'm so depressed that I'm not finding, like... You know, litter is never like bottles of champagne, like nice champagne or something like that. It's always just everyday shit, you know, like no one's balling out of control and like, you know, really just living it up for a day. It's just like, you know, a bag of Fritos, like mm -hmm. Coke cans or whatever, where it's like, this is just an everyday thing for you. Like if, if this was like, oh, it's a bottle of champagne. Clearly this person is celebrating was maybe not you know like as focused on stewardship or whatever because they're like elated they're having like the time of their life or something like that like that is maybe it's not forgivable forgivable but it's more understandable about like why you might be neglecting where you're putting your trash or something like that it's just like you threw this out of your car window because you just didn't want to like take it with you yeah. to throw it away later yeah. you know like that drives me crazy. <laughs> Littering is just one of the most depressing things for me because it's just so casual. And, yeah. and it's just so casually destructive. It's so easy to throw things away in most places. Um, <laughs> but you just like, nah. <sighs> makes me mad. It makes me yeah. mad. <laughs> the other thing the movie talks about is the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. And we are still dealing with it today. Um, I think especially during COVID and got a lot of attention, um, like the coffin homes in Hong Kong, where people were just now trapped in these like tiny little spaces or the student living rooms. Like it's, it was like study rooms in Korea that have now been converted into like people living there. And it, it the thing that we're dealing with here in LA where I'm living is a lot of the zoning is for single family homes. So you can't build apartments mm -hmm. or duplexes and people like bitch about the homelessness, but nobody wants to make like the sacrifice in their own neighborhoods or do their own part. And yeah. we just recently had like a bill that was going to make zoning easier. And of course, you know, it didn't pass. There's all these liberals living out here. Billions of dollars are getting thrown at this because we're having such huge issues with homelessness, which then also means we have issues with rodents and trash. But then people kind of like are like not in my neighborhood. You know, they don't want to actually do yeah. anything about it. So 
that's what that was going through my mind as <laughs> I was watching this film. I, I'm working on uh, research right now looking at flood risk for multifamily and single-family residential homes in, like, four cities in the U.S. And, yeah, there's just so much land devoted to single-family homes, like, mm. particularly here in, in Phoenix. And there's, like, some densification that's happening, but, of course, it's getting resisted by various groups for, you know, various reasons, uh, mostly bad um, <laughs> and cynical and being like, well, you know, we just can't trust these particular companies or whatever. And it's like, well, okay, but that's a convenient way to not seed any sort of resources um, and people got to live somewhere, you know? And also it's so bad for a place like Phoenix, which is already dealing with like this huge heat issue. And we have these like single family homes everywhere and you have to like pave everything uh, in order to provide transportation to all these homes. So you just end up like, you have this really spread out place that's just baking constantly because you it's just tons and tons of black pavement um, that's absorbing all of this and then emanating it overnight. So the nights are hotter than they used to be too, as opposed to if we had like a, a denser structure and it's very frustrating. It's just like, there's, there's so many problems. There's so much parking, which is not mm. something I really thought about much uh, until I, uh, lived abroad, like even going down to like Hermosillo, Mexico, which is like five hours away. It's a much smaller place and it can be smaller because there's not space for everyone's individual vehicles everywhere too, which of course is part of the, that's just comes naturally with single family homes in the spread out sort of place where you don't, public transportation is expensive and there's not a whole lot of will to do it uh, Mm. either, but everyone's just like, I've got my own house and a garage or whatever. Who cares? Like all the car. So do you think Um, that, I mean, I don't know how the science works, but do you think if there was more of like one big apartment complex that a lot of people were living in and then this, the space that would free up then from the single family homes and you could then, I don't know, plant something that would help cool down the city or do some kind of like natural feature that. Yeah. I mean, even just the, (laughs) Phoenix, yeah, Phoenix is complicated. Even just like the dirt, um, you know, is is cooler than than uh, a lot of than the pavement around here. But I mean, like, I I suffer uh, where I'm at because there's so much pavement around me that's you know not even necessarily locally within my apartment complex. The heat island effect is what they refer to as this like cities end up being several degrees hotter than the surrounding areas. Um, because there's so much pavement and any amount of like keeping that down is is desirable. Mm. It's complicated in a place like Phoenix because we have a lot of scorpions. Um, <laughs> like scorpions just are a natural part of the landscape and they're everywhere. So part of the reason that a lot of stuff gets paved here is because then it, they're taking it away from like scorpion habitat um, mm. and like rattlesnake habitat and stuff like that too. So you have to worry about these other sort of considerations, mm. but like, they, they spray so much like poison uh, and pest control stuff here around for like, we're pretty buffered in this part of the city, but you get out to the outskirts and you know, where it's like single family housing or multifamily housing and then desert. And then they have a lot of problems with like scorpions coming in, which is in, another interesting aspect of, uh, yeah, there's hmm. nature is good. Undesirable nature uh, <laughs> that people don't <laughs> want to deal with in a place like Phoenix. Um, that yeah. makes sense. Like when people kind of realize them or when the raccoons figure out that the movement's kind of a failure and they're kind of splitting into these like different factions, they bring in these like three shape-shifting masters from other like raccoon villages. It's a major plot point when they finally show up. 
they go through this like huge effort to try to like spook the humans and like make them, I don't know, think more about their actions and be more spiritual and, you know, which had more ties to the lands and, you know, there's, there's kind of a logic through there. That's a failure. One of them dies in the effort, uh, one of the like shape-shifting elders. And then the two remaining ones are kind of split on what to do. One of them seems to kind of go senile uh, and starts a uh, a dancing cult, I think is how it gets described. His name is Hage. He's 999 years old, so he's almost a 1,000. And he just kind of decides that it's his time. And so there's this uh, incredible scene where him and his dancing cult that he started, like, after the failure, decide to just kind of depart like the elves did in the Lord of the Rings <laughs> film to Valinor uh, and, you know, boards a, a golden vessel and they just kind of like uh, a bunch, him and a bunch of other raccoons presumably just sail to their death, you know, in spite of the fact that these other raccoons are like perfectly healthy. But it was just this funny like Lord of the Rings scene uh, in, in the middle of this film, uh, which, yeah. which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Again, um, like so random. There's so many of these little scenes that, like you said, it's just like, well, you're just living in this world. Like it doesn't have to lead anywhere. Like we're just here. Yeah, no, it was. It's like almost too much immersion. There's like not enough happening sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, all right, so it's like this weird little petty factionalism or whatever. And you know, the big thing has already happened, and they're still just kind of like scrambling to figure out, well, what the fuck do we do now? Uh, and, you know, one of them's like, I'll go senile and sail off into uh, spiritual death, basically. It's a really good film in that there's just a lot of like spectacle uh, and you're just like, what is happening yeah. Uh, yeah. in a lot of it? But it doesn't work as a film in a lot of the traditional, you know, ways that we would we would judge them, I guess. Yeah, it doesn't really have like the three-act structure or, you know, normal storytelling it doesn't no. really follow that at all it really <laughs> defies the three act structure did, did you watch this at, um with subs or dubs the hbo one it only allowed me to watch it in english i didn't so have enough oh sorry you actually can change that in, in hbo max i was able to watch the japanese version okay maybe uh, i just didn't figure it out i was messing around with it and i was like ah, i couldn't find it i just watched it in english no, it, it's fine uh, it's, but I mean, this this works out well. So um, I didn't realize this until I finally went and looked up who did the voice acting for the English version. But uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas is Shokichi, who's like one of the main uh, raccoons. And I thought that was really funny. I was like, JTT, I haven't thought about him in forever. Um, Jonathan Taylor, wait, I have to Google him. Who... He was the teen heartthrob from uh, Home Improvement. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> there's there's a lot of outraged people from our generation who are like, you you don't know JTT? What the hell? <laughs> um, yeah, no, he was a he was a phenomenon. Another character is voiced by J um, J.K. Simmons, who is uh, great always mm. and everything. But then uh, Ryu Taro, which is another one of the raccoons, is actually voiced by um, John DiMaggio, who is uh, the voice oh, actor who later voiced Bender. Um, mm. Stand-up comedian fans, uh, Brian Posehn, who's a weird alt comic from like the '90s and early 2000s, actually voiced a character in this. It was a weird like convergence of of extremely '90s people um, who came together and voiced <laughs> this, which I thought was, I mean, like getting JTT was clearly a reach for like who's the most famous person we can pay 
to like try to get an audience into this. Um, and I don't, I don't know anyone who has seen this film uh, in my friend group, so I don't think it succeeded no, at I all. No, I never ever heard of this film. <laughs> also, another thing I really loved about this film was the uh, background, just the watercolor spreads that they use just for the background. I thought yeah. it was so gorgeous. Like, oh, really, really nice. The artwork. I mean, it's a Ghibli film, so of course it's going to be nice. Yeah, no, the, the backgrounds are really good. They, there's a lot of really good, like, metaphorical imagery. Like, early on, there's, like, a they're trying to show the progress of construction over these environmental areas. And there's this one scene where there's, like, um, narration over it, kind of talking about development in the region. And it's, like, a leaf in the foreground and, like, a city in the background. And you have these, like, I don't know, like, backhoes, basically, uh, that are kind of driving around this leaf and like taking chunks out of it. Mm, yeah. Um, like how bugs eat through a leaf. And then like, as they're eating the green parts of the leaf away, you get to see more of the city in the background. There's a lot of like really beautiful, like metaphorical imagery in this as well, you know, which is, I don't necessarily know that it would have been that impactful for me as the dumb kid I was, but, um, <laughs> it's really beautiful. And, both in terms of the animation is really good, but I think they also really went out of their way to try to think of other ways to describe like environmental impacts. Was there any point in this film where you were like really touched or like moved? I, I doubt you cried during it or anything like no, that. No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Are you talking right. about the scene where they have like, they give everyone the vision of like what life could have been like? Is that oh, the scene know, that you're thinking of or... Uh, it, that wasn't, that's not the one that kind of got me on that one. There's, um, one scene where a couple of the raccoons decide that they need to make contact with the humans and get in touch with like a news crew because there's, there's been rumors, uh, that raccoons are the source of, um, delays in construction because the raccoons are doing all sort of mischievous sort of efforts. So it's kind of like being floated around, like there's witnesses who are like, it was the raccoons. And of course, society is like, it's not the raccoons, that's crazy. But it's happened enough times, enough people have said something about it, where, you know, in the back of society's mind, they're like, well, maybe there's something to that. Um, but anyway, so the raccoons finally get in contact with, with a, a news crew and call them out to the woods, basically. And the news crew shows up. And uh, the raccoons are like, too shy to be like filmed on camera so they're like talking to him through the bushes and the news crew is like you got to come out and like show your faces otherwise no one's going to believe that you're raccoons or whatever and so they finally step out um and they you know talk about their plight but then they i forget like what exactly is said but then they all turn into a bunch of like forest creatures like deer squirrel um mm. whatever and start like capering around and like really shock like the news crew i think they end up like bowling them over at some point but for whatever reason i thought that was like really touching because they're kind of getting into just like this is everything that's being lost you know just in mm -hmm. terms of like the 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 fauna of this region mm -hmm. and it's really heartbreaking living in a place that is like totally devoid of like environmental interaction like interaction with wildlife is it sucks i mean like if you're stuck in the middle of a city you know what do you got like squirrels and pigeons like that's pretty much it but mm -hmm. you're living in an area that is normally the home to beaver to muskrat to deer to moose whatever you know and you'll never encounter that in in your daily life you have if you're lucky enough to have enough money to like make escape the city uh maybe you'll you know you'll get lucky and see something but kids just grow up in these situations and never have these sort of encounters 
and everyone's life is poorer for it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I thought it was really touching, you know, sort of the, the plight of the animals and just being like, how do we communicate how bad this is, you know, like for all of us? But then in which, the movie, like nothing happens with that. Like nobody learns yeah. from that, which is again like, oh, real, real life. All the environmental yeah. havoc we're wreaking. I think it kind of ends with them saying like, yeah, they tried to like put more parks in and so forth. And, you know, some of the raccoons were able to, to kind of live in those areas. But like the end scene is them dancing on a golf course and golf course is not an appropriate natural landscape for Mm -hmm. wildlife. And explicitly they're like driven out of those areas. There's so many things where it's just like, uh, I, (laughs) this sucks like i wanted there to be like a a solution or something like that to come out of this but they just kind of hit you with the reality of it and like yeah this is what you're dealing with like i don't know it's a good film it makes i don't know it made me feel really deeply for a lot of this stuff but not in a way that was uplifting it's just like damn (laughs) like (laughs) this does suck like we gotta do something about this but it i mean that's part of what you're studying what your job is too right just being depressed all the time about the environment yeah i i wish i'm like trying to segue into more work that's looking at biodiversity and so i study i work on like wetlands and cities basically that's that's my main concern but i do it for like flooding and hydrological reasons but I, i worked in in these urban wetlands in a city in southern chile and was doing informal work that's not part of my research on like wildlife surveys in them and yeah like i'm all about like yeah there's no beaver here there's no otters which would normally be here there's no like there's this particular species of wetland bird called the siete colores that's like beautiful um and everyone associates it with the wetlands but it's gone from the urban wetlands it's it's not there at all you have to like go out of the city in order to do it or in order to like actually have a chance of seeing one Mm. you know the good news is that there are things we can do to actively you know keep wildlife and and keep the environments healthy in cities we just don't um so it it's nice in that some of my work is like aimed toward actually treating environment in a way that's beneficial for for all parties but uh it's hard (laughs) yeah and we have a long legacy of not doing that that we're fighting against yeah that's just like what i want to like tell people is like doing this stuff helps you too like it's not it's not like oh if we have to save the environment humans will suffer not make enough money or you know it's like like it's really confused in the environmental movement too there's like a whole field of environmental economics that's like okay so you people only think about the monetary value of things well here's our best effort at putting a monetary value on all these different aspects of these like landscape everything from like being able to cut down trees in this area sustainably in order to produce like wood yields to the psychological benefits to water purification to whatever so like okay if we're gonna make this compete against like a new shopping center here's the environmental value of what this is providing you currently in us dollars or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, so this is the number to beat in a lot of cases. And number one, you don't get in the door in a lot of places with that sort of argument. So it's already kind of like a flawed um, way of going, but then also there's always the chance that the dollar value that you come up with, which is always kind of ridiculous anyway, because it's like how much, you know, what's the dollar value? value of having um a family of beaver like in this area you know like it's just 
it's intangible right. um, in a lot of important ways. But you produce this dollar value, which is kind of bullshit in the first place, but whatever. Um, and then they're like, yeah, well, the shopping center produces this much amount of money. So we're going to do that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, talk to anyone who's spent time around nature, like, and it's, it's invaluable, like inherently. And uh, cities care about money. They care about tax revenue, et cetera. There's there's a movement. Uh, we're we're figuring out ways to to weasel in um, environmental protections into discussions mm-hmm. with like city officials and so forth. So, mm. but it's so interesting also how the last presidency has changed that. I was just recently reading an article how there's this what is the term? I think it's called a brain drain because um, mm-hmm. the current American president Biden he was looking for these people to finally go back and fill these spots of like studying the environment and all that and those people were like no if you don't get reelected I'm just going to lose my job again in four years and like there's no yeah. stability here and that's also why we don't have many of the contracts with not just with environmental stuff but with any kind of commercial venture with other countries because their governments may have somebody in charge for a much longer time and they yeah. don't have executive orders and they don't you know it's like i'm this auto company and i might sign a deal with you know the united states for something but i know that might fall through like four years from now and it's just the instability that the structure of this government has is also non-conducive to like solving a lot of things Yeah, it's the instability. And then I think also just like the stark contrast that the parties are trying to create between each other. Um, Like, there's a lot that's like done by one administration. And like the conservatives are like, well, that's bad, because they're doing it. So opposed (laughs) to it. Um, But there's this sort of weird politicization of this issue that doesn't exist in a lot of other countries doesn't sound certainly. But like, yeah, you're right. Like, uh, if I take this position under you, I'm out in the next administration. Like right. that's it for me. And this work may, which you know, environmental work takes a long time, yeah. and so it has to be something with a vision and a budget for longer than the current administration before the political tide changes. Yeah. And someone comes in and was like, "Well, that's inherently that was a the last administration's priority, and by by virtue of it being their priority, it is now." Uh, a priority to stop it, like right. under this administration. Um, I, my advisor from uh, Chile, who's like, you know, very liberal, probably more on the leftist side, um, took a job under the conservative administration working in the environment because it's just like uh, these are projects that both parties can agree on are important, mm-hmm. regardless of the other political ideologies like at play here. Um, I just feel like it's really tough to find that in the United States. Um, that's a good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Anything else? I'm out. Uh, no. Um, I did watch other Miyazaki films uh, that are also very good. Spirited Away rocks. That is an incredible film. Mm. Princess Mononoke. Finally watched. Also rocks. Also about um, the environment. Yeah. Also an environmental parable. Yeah. Um, really cool. It's also kind of has a an ambiguous resolution to it mm-hmm. as well that's true. you know it's kind of like what are you gonna do we already chopped the head off of the deer god and there's no there's no going back from that you know but can we forge some 
you know, a better way forward that's more in balance yeah. with it. Well, we got to try something, you know. Have you like, seen um, Howl's Moving Castle at all? Yes. So that's my favorite Miyazaki film. And the book is kind of like this beautiful, magical story. And then he takes that and makes it about like war and what are the effects of war on a population. And it's just one of those classic like you know, Miyazaki moves of like, let's talk about something bigger, bigger here. It's one of those instances where the movie and the book are, they're very different, but each do their own thing in the best way that they can, if that makes sense. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I need to go back and rewatch that. I saw it years ago and uh, was not giving it my full attention, but I remember the animation and that being just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, Miyazaki has that, or Studio Ghibli in general has that finesse that I'm sometimes lacking from Frank Herbert yeah. talking about some of these like big issues. Yeah. There's more ambiguity allowed in, in Miyazaki films, which I think is his explicit intent. I think I've like seen in interviews where he's just like, I'm not interested in the sort of linear storytelling mm -hmm. or these concrete pat resolutions to things it's that's just not how the real world is mm. um i think it ends up like not being as preachy i think in in ways that a lot oh, of oh that's a good America, point yeah yeah it's mm. just like mm, it's complicated man uh <laughs> <laughs> like here's here's kind of the smorgasbord it's obvious that some of these are better than others but it's tough to, it's tough to know in the moment relationships are complicated sometimes one of your strongest allies and your biggest hopes uh goes senile and creates a dancing cult and uh <laughs> sails off with part of your tribe you know like <laughs> that's life uh <laughs> <laughs> you know that's how it goes to valinor yeah. but yeah that's it that is the end of our episode jason thank you so much again for coming on to talk to us about this and where can people find you online uh, yeah, I'm at Jason R. Sauer, S-A-U-E-R, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and that's pretty much it. I'm I'm off other social media. I'm thinking about restarting my Instagram, which is the same name, because I, I do like photography, but I hate Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to do about that. But anyway. Aren't uh, no, we all? Topic. Aren't we all? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jason. <laughs>